Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's program of Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley here in Palo Alto. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club. It is my great pleasure to introduce David Brooks, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, author of the new and already widely discussed book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. Mr. Brooks is one of the most thoughtful, not to mention witty and insightful, writers and commentators in the English language today. He's a member of that increasingly rare species, a political moderate. We enjoy his thoughts as half of the commentator duo Shields and Brooks on PBS. He's also written several classic books about American life, The Social Animal, Bobo's in Paradise, On Paradise Drive, and The Road to Character. He teaches at Yale University, and he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Mr. Brooks graduated from the University of Chicago with a degree in history and started his journalism career at the Chicago City News Bureau. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in a warm California welcome for David Brooks. I was told it was my fifth time here, which I did not know, so this is my home away from home in the Bay Area. What I was going to do is I was just going to tell you two stories, uh, and those uh, stories are both about me, because I'm a narcissist, um, <laughs> but I hope it's about all of us, uh, and one story is an external story about the external side of our life and how it can go, and the other is the internal story, how things are actually working in here. And so my external story is kind of a... a Obvious one, it's a pretty clear trajectory. At age seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear, uh, and I decided at that moment I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and so I've been writing pretty much ever since. In high school, I wanted to date this woman named Bernice. She didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other person. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. <laughs> and so the, uh, those are my values. Um, And so I was headed off in sort of a heady, cerebral direction. When I was 18, the admissions officers at Columbia University, Wesleyan and Brown, decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Um, And that was also a heady place. Um, I I had uh, the best saying about Chicago, it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. That's pretty much what it was like. Um, I had a double major there in history and celibacy uh, while I was there. Uh, And I actually had the big break of my life uh, while I was there. I was a senior, and William F. Buckley came to campus, and uh, I wrote a really mean parody of him for being a name-dropping blowhard. I was like, when he was at Yale, he wrote two books, one called The National Buckley, the other called The Buckley Review, which he merged to form The Buckley Buckley. It was like... um, And so at the end of his talk... Uh, he said to the student body, uh, David Brooks, if you're in the audience, I want to give you a job. And that really was the big break of my, of my career. Um, sadly, I was not in the audience. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I was actually here in Palo Alto. That is literally true. I was hired by PBS to debate Milton Friedman, who was then at the Hoover Institution. Uh, it was a show where Milton talks to about six college students. Uh, and you can go on YouTube, and you can see a 21-year-old version of me. 
with a big Jufro, uh, and 1980s-style gigantic glasses, which are apparently on loan from the Mount Palomar Lunar Observatory. <laughs> and the show consisted of me making some point I'd read in a textbook, him destroying it about 16 words, and then the camera lingering on my face for 20 seconds while I sat there trying to think of something to say. No, basically the show. And so that let me off. Then I called Buckley about three years later, and the offer was still open, and my journalism career went. And then, so, you know, I was hired around the time Bill Sapphire retired from the New York Times to sort of be a conservative columnist of the New York Times, a job I likened to being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Uh, not a lot of company there. Um, and then... And then I got a job uh, at the News Hour uh, with Mark Shields, and our segment is called uh, Shields and Brooks. It should be Brooks Shields, but uh, anyway. Uh, and I always say Mark has been doing it a little longer than me. It's now called Shields and Brooks. Before that was Shields and Shigo, then Shields and Gergen, uh, Shields and Coolidge, I think, uh, <laughs> Shields and John Adams. Uh, and so we cater to a certain audience, which I think of as seasoned youth. Um, <laughs> And so if a 93-year-old lady comes up to me in the airport, I know what she's going to say. I don't watch your show, but my mother loves it. Uh, and so, um, and then the final thing about my external life is I write and read these books. Uh, books are a big part of my life. Uh, and if I've gotten older, I've got a little more sensitive in my tastes, I think, a little more feminine. I'm the only American man who finished that book, Eat, Pray, Love, a few years ago, if you remember that. Uh, by page 123, I was actually lactating, which was amazing. I, um, <laughs> And then um, I wrote, four years ago, this Road to Character, a book on character formation. And I learned writing that book um, that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character, and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. But buying a book on character does give you good character. So, um, and so that's the external version of my life. Uh, the internal is somewhat different. I actually went back and reread in the last year Paddington the Bear, and it's a very sad story. It's about a bear who comes from Peru and is stuck in a train station with nobody to love him, and a family takes him in. And so I was thinking, oh, wow, what kind of kid was I that this really moved me? Uh, and, but, uh, and the other thing I remembered was how intense I felt reading it the first time, how I felt I'd discover something. And there are certain moments, often early in life, sometimes later in life, where uh, what I call enunciation moments, moments that prefigure a lot of what's going to come later in your life, where you find something you love. One of my heroes is a scientist named E.O. Wilson, who when he was seven, his family was divorcing in Alabama, so they shipped him off to somebody's home in, in Paradise Beach in North Florida, a family he didn't know. So he'd never been to the ocean before, and he just spent the summer roaming up and down the beach. And he saw things that were outside his imagination. He never even contemplated there could be a, something like a jellyfish. And one day he was sitting on the dock with his feet in the water and a stingray slid beneath him. And he later said that as a child he saw animals at twice the size as he sees them as adults. And he just felt the call of this beautiful world. And one of the things that we're called by when we find what we're going to do with our lives, often it's just this aesthetic sense of beauty. We feel something at home. My daughter came out here, uh, well, she, at five, she walked into a hockey rink and just felt at home. And now she works down the coast uh, several hundred miles for the Anaheim Ducks teaching hockey. She just feels at home. Uh, Einstein, when he was four, his father gave him a compass, and he saw invisible forces in the universe shaping where the needle went. Spent the rest of his life thinking about that. 
Uh, Nietzsche says, if you want to know uh, what your calling is, line up the four most beautiful moments in your life and see if you can draw a thematic line through them. Uh, and so sometimes it's just aesthetic. There was a painter, and she was asked, why are you into painting? She just said, I love the smell of paint. And it's just aesthetic. And Wilson had one other thing in his, his life that shaped him. That summer, he was fishing. He caught a fish, but he was careless taking it off the hook, and it flopped into his face, and the, the needle from the, from the tail poked his retina. Uh, and he lost vision in that eye. Uh, and so he couldn't study birds, which required two eyes or fish, but he could study ants. And so he became a great ant scientist and then a great scientist, period. And sometimes it's good to have options closed off. So the other thing I remember about our childhood is not the intensity of the aesthetic experience, but also how much we had, could have admired people. When I was a kid, I looked at teenagers. I thought they were gods. Like, they seemed so poised. My at William F. Buckley seemed sort of, like, amazing when I was a young man. And I just wanted to copy him. For Wilson, uh, he had a, a guy named Philip Darlington, who was a scientist who taught him how to do, be a scientist. Uh, and he said, when you're going to collect your samples, don't go on the trails, cut through the jungle. And once when Darlington was collecting samples in the rainforest, he was on a log collecting his samples in a pond, and a crocodile came up and grabbed him and took him down. He escaped, the crocodile came up and got him again, took him down. And he finally escaped, his body shredded and made it back to civilization and saved his life. But that wasn't what impressed Wilson. What impressed Wilson was he was in a body cast, his right arm immobilized. He spent the next several months back in the jungle collecting bugs one-handed. And what young people and what a lot of us want is not happiness but intensity, something that's really hard and worthy of that hardness. And that's the intensity we seek in life. And so that's, that's the beginning of a good life, a wholehearted life. But sometimes we do a good job of covering that over and numbing things up. We take kids at the privileged places in our country and at age 15 or 16 put them through the college admissions process, which teaches them that status and achievement are going to be at the center of life. Uh, And then we tell them certain lies about our culture. We have a lot of good things about our culture, but we're a very individualistic culture and a very meritocratic culture especially in towns like this one. And there are a few lies that are embedded in that. One is career success can make you happy. I've had a lot of career success. It has spared me the pain I might feel if I felt myself a failure, but it hasn't given me any positive fulfillment. And the suicides of famous people like Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain teach us that. Second, I can make myself happy. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. You can do it on your own if you only lose 15 more pounds, get really good at yoga. But if you look at the people who are really happy or look at talk to people on their deathbeds, what they remember is the thickness of their relationships, the time when they defeated self-sufficiency and were utterly dependent on somebody else and they were utterly dependent on them. But we don't teach our kids that. We teach them life is an individual journey. If you ever heard that book, Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss, it's about a creature who has an individual journey towards success, no family in that book, no friendship in that book, just an individual climb. And there's a researcher here at Stanford uh, who says that immigrant kids have struggled with that book because it's not life as they recognize it. But all these things are embedded in our culture. The idea that you are what you accomplish, that that love is conditional, you were in love by by earning it through what you achieve, that society is divided between people, successful people in the inner ring and less successful people out, that you yourself are not a soul to be saved. 
your set of skills to be maximized. And finally, that some people who achieve more or maybe smarter are slightly worth more. And that's a poisonous belief for any society. So what we do is we take the intensity and we sometimes turn off the moral switch. There was a daycare center in Israel. They had a problem that people were coming on late to pick up their kids. So they decided to impose fines on anybody who came up late. And the number of people who came up late doubled. <laughs> because before, it had been a moral responsibility to come up on time so the teachers didn't have to stick around. But then they turned what had been a moral responsibility into an economic transaction. They'd shut off the moral lens and turned on the economic lens. And we can do that as a whole culture. And so what happens when you set people off on a culture that has some errors in it, they lead lives that are fundamentally unsustainable. And to me, climbing the first mountain is doing the things we do, a lot of us do early in our life. We want to have a career. We want to make a mark on the world. We want to build an identity. But you get to the top of that mountain, and a lot of people realize life is kind of, this is kind of unsatisfying. I'm not satisfied with this. Or you fail. You get knocked off that mountain. Or something happens that wasn't part of the original plan. You have a cancer scare. You lose a child. And suddenly the desires you used to have seem small and unimportant. And so one way or another, most of us at some points in our life wind up in the valley. And so that happened to me. I started out, I'm a writer, so I tend to have a detached personality type. I always tell uh, college students, if you're in a football game and everyone else is doing the wave and you sit there and you don't do the wave, then you have the right kind of aloof personality type to be a journalist. Because we just... Um, or as Gary Shandling said, my friends tell me I have an intimacy problem, but they don't really know me. Uh, and so there's sort of a detached personality type. Then you go into the work, and it's lonely work. You're sitting alone in a computer a lot of the time. Uh, John Cheever was a writer in New York. He would get up in the morning, put on a suit and tie, ride down to the elevator to the basement of his building where he had an office. He'd take off the suit and tie, ride in his boxers. At 12.30, he'd put back on the suit and tie, ride up to the elevator, make himself lunch. That was, that's the life of a writer. And then if you get successful, weirdly, you get even more isolated. My last book did pretty well, and I was on book tour for 99 days. And I counted in the middle of that 42 consecutive meals I ate alone, either an airport, a hotel, or an airplane. And when you're, when you're so isolated, you're just off the rails of normal life. And around that time, I saw a picture of uh, Britney Spears sort of went crazy and shaved off all her hair. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> And so I, had been, I thought I was playing the game, but I was being played by the game. And I thought a lot about reputation. Where do I rank? I came to idolize time over people. I wanted to be so productive, I was always on the move. And so nobody ever confided into me because they sensed that I wasn't going to be there for them. Uh, and I was, even though I'm a communicator, my communication with my friends was not great. And it was like conflict avoidance. Communication between friends should be total truth and total in a context of total love. And it's hard to balance those, both those things. And I was not good at it. And so the wages of sin are sin. And in early 2013, my marriage had ended. My kids had gone off to college. I used to be part of the conservative movement, but what they call conservatism today, I don't really recognize. And so I drifted away from that. And so I was living alone in an apartment, and I had no friends coming over. I had nobody entertaining and so if you open the kitchen drawers where I used, there should be silverware, there were just post-it notes. And where there should have been plates, there was just envelopes and pens. 
And that's a certain kind of life. And the weird thing is, is I was falling into a valley of detachment. And as I was falling into a valley, a lot of other people were falling into the valley, that same valley, disconnection, detachment, a loss of intimacy and solidarity. 35% of Americans over 45 say they're chronically lonely. Only 8% of Americans report having important conversations with their neighbors. The fastest growing political party is unaffiliated. The fastest growing religious movement is unaffiliated. The suicide rate has risen 30% in the last 20 years. The teenage suicide rate since 2011 is up 70%. And so this is isolation. We don't trust our neighbors. We don't trust our institutions. And we tend to, depression rates are rising. We tend to have these things that are like telos crises. And we're in a national valley. And people vote certain way, they fall for popular, for angry authoritarian leaders because they're alone and they feel their communities are dissolving. And so when I was in the Valley, I had a few big realizations. The first is that freedom sucks. Political freedom is good. Social freedom, no good. The, all my friends who were married were fantasizing through me, oh, it must be so great to be unattached. No. <laughs> The unattached person is the unremembered person because they're not committed to anything. You really want to be attached. The second thing I learned is that when you're down in the valley, you can either be broken or you can be broken open. Some people are broken. They turn angry, resentful at the world. They shrink. They're afraid. And they lash out in tribalism. They lash out in anger. They create us-them distinctions. They build barriers. And they erect walls. As they say, pain that is not transformed gets transmitted. They tend to make the people around them feel pain. But some people get broken open. Paul Tillich, a 1950s theologian, wrote that pain is an interruption of your normal life, and it reminds you you're not the person you thought you were. It carves into the floor of the basement of your soul and carves through that floor and reveals a cavity below, and it carves through that and reveals a cavity below. You realize depths of yourself you did not know existed. And when you see down into those depths, you see that only spiritual and relational food will fill them. The ego desires will not fill those depths. And so when you're down in the valley, when you're in those moments of suffering, the ego sort of goes away. Uh, and the first thing you see is the desires of the heart. Uh, and the desire of the heart is for fusion with one another. The kind of fusion, the kind of merger that Louis de Bernier described in a book called Captain Corelli's Mandolin. He's an old guy talking to his daughter about his relationship with his late wife. And the old guy says, love itself is what is left over when being in love is burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew towards each other underground. And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. That's what our heart desires. The second thing we have in there is the soul. Now, I don't ask you to believe in God or not believe in God, not my department. But I do ask you to believe a soul. you have a soul, that there's some piece of you that has no shape, size, color, or weight, but gives you infinite dignity. And rich and successful people don't have more of this than less successful people. That slavery is wrong because there's assault on another person's soul. That rape is not just an attack on physical molecules, it's an attempt to insult another person's soul. And what the soul does is it yearns. It yearns for goodness. We all want to lead meaningful lives, and it drives you to seek that. Steinbeck said at East of Eden that we're caught in a drama of good and evil. At the end of our lives, we have only the hard, clean question, have I done well or have I done ill? 
And it's our soul that gets filled up when we feel we're doing well, and it gets sick when we feel we're not. And that leads to the third realization I had, which was the problem is not going to be solved on the level of consciousness at which you created it. You have to have a deeper consciousness. When the moments of suffering, we throw ourselves on our friends and we have deeper, deeper uh, conversations than ever before, but we also go out into the wilderness. There has to be time alone where you do your inner work. And the virtue of going out into the wilderness and doing your inner work is first time slows down, but secondly, there's nobody to perform for. If you've been living out of your ego ideal, you've been performing all your life. The rocks and mountains don't care. <laughs> and so the ego crumbles, and as Belden Lane says, it's only after the ego, the ego is crumbled that you're capable of being loved. I had a friend who said um, when her daughter was born, she found she loved her more than evolution required. <laughs> and I've always loved that because it describes what's really what you find at the core of ourselves, which is what Annie Dillard called our complex and inexplicable caring for each other. At the core of ourselves, we have this capacity just to be attentive and compassionate and soft and interdependent with one another. And so I was down in the valley, and I'd sort of been broken open, and I had a lucky break. Some people pulled me out. I don't think you can climb out. They have to reach out and pull you out. And so I was invited over to a home, a couple named Kathy and David. And uh, they had a friend in the D.C. public schools. And he had a friend named James who had no place to stay and nothing to eat. So they said, James can come with us. And then James had a friend, and that kid had a friend, and that kid had a friend. By the time I went to dinner there Thursday night for the first time six years ago, there were about 40 kids around the table and 15 sleeping around the house. And I walk in there, reach out my hand to shake a kid's hand, and the kid says, we don't shake hands here. We hug here. And I'm not the huggiest guy on the face of the earth, but I've been going back for six years every Thursday I'm in town and just hugging with the, this community. And the kids f force you to show up emotionally. They force complete emotional intimacy and interdependence. We have the same food every Thursday, and we go around the table, what's happened to in our lives? Sometimes it's good graduate from GD or whatever. Sometimes it's bad, pregnancy, depression. One of the young ladies' kidney failed, and David, the father figure in the family, gave her his. I took my daughter there, and she said, that's the warmest place I've ever been. And so I've been so fortunate to be in a warm place that models on how you do warmth. And I would write these columns during the day about social isolation, about anger and tribalism. Then I'd go to this dinner on Thursday and say, this is the answer right here. And the good news is that these kinds of communities are common. I created something called Weave, the Social Fabric at the Aspen Institute, which is our logo. And it's based on the idea that community, lack of community is our core problem, lack of treating each other well. But it's being solved at the local level all around the country. And so we would drop into a, a town and we'd find 75 weavers right away. We just ask, who's trusted here? And there's always somebody doing something. Sometimes it's very informal. We ran to a lady in Florida who was helping kids um, cross the street out of elementary school. And we asked, um, are you, do you have any time to volunteer? And she said, no, I have no time to volunteer. And I said, well, are you being paid for this? No. What are you doing this afternoon? Well, I go, I go to the hospital every afternoon, and I bring food to the sick. She didn't think that was volunteering. That's just what neighbors do, or at least it used to be. Some of the weavers we found have had horrible valleys in their lives spent an afternoon with a woman 
um, in Ohio who was out antiquing with her mom and came home Sunday evening, and her husband had killed their kids and himself. And uh, she now runs a, a program for women who suffered violence in their homes. Uh, she teaches. She has a free pharmacy. She's a nurse. She told me, I grew from this experience because I was angry. I was going to fight back against what he tried to do to me by making a difference in the world. He didn't kill me. My response to him, whatever you meant to do to me, screw you. You're not going to do it to me. And these weavers have moral motivations. They're not driven by what economists tell us we're driven by, utilitarian self-interest. They don't care about that stuff. They want to be in right relationship with each other and serving something good. Vocational certitude. They know why they were put on this earth. Radical mutuality. We're not here. We're not low. We're all equal. We're all broken. We're all walking this together. But mostly they're just really good at relationship. It's easy to say I'm going to live for a relationship. It's really hard to do. There's practical things you have to do to set up good relationships. You have to have empathy. There's a woman named Mary Gordon who runs something called Roots of Empathy. And what they do is they take moms and kids and put them in an eighth-grade classroom, a mom and an infant, and the eighth-graders have to guess what the infant is thinking. It's a way to get them to think about other people's minds. And so the infant's crawling around, and they're trying to guess. Uh, and one day there was a kid named Darren, and Darren uh, was bigger because he'd been in the foster care system held back two years, and he looked a little scary. And he asked if uh, he could hold the baby. And the mom was a little nervous because Darren looked a little scary. But she let him have the baby, and he was great with the baby. And he handed the baby back to the mom, uh, and he asked a bunch of questions about parenthood. And the last one was, if nobody has ever loved you, do you think you could be a good father? And so what Roots of Empathy was doing was reaching into the valley and lifting Darren out. And so these are the shift in values that I think we need in our culture. We need a, a shift from a culture of individualism, which was great when we started, but we sort of run out the string, to a culture that emphasizes commitment, relationship, covenant, promise. First and second mountain are just two different value systems. First mountain is building up the ego, defining the self. The second mountain is shedding the ego and losing the self. First mountain is about acquisition. The second mountain is about contribution. The first mountain is elitist, you're climbing up. The second mountain is egalitarian, planting yourself down. And if we all adopted some of these value systems, we could have a much different society. And in my view, society moves forward when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. It happened in the 1960s here in the Bay Area. Hippies. A lot of people liked the way they lived. They copied them. Feminist movement. People like that said, oh, that's an answer to a real problem. Environmental movement, that's an answer to a real problem. We have a problem of community now, but we don't have a community movement yet. But there's a movement out there that doesn't know it's a movement, and cohering those people into one thing is the next big challenge of our day. And then shifting a culture, the values we take as assumptions, and shifting the norms. Because community building is all about relationship. And relationships don't scale. They're just local. But norms scale. If you can shape what we think, what's the definition of a neighbor? How do I be a neighbor? What's the definition of a friend? If you can give people the actual skills to relate to each other better and not to stereotype, then you can have this massive cultural shift. And I've written this book as a small push in that direction. Thank you.
Thank you so much. That was David Brooks, writer and commentator. And you covered the range, really, from politics to epistemology. Um, and by the way, I could also tell, I, I read in the book that you were actually a humor writer uh, in Chicago when uh, William F. Buckley offered you a job, and that certainly comes through as well. So thank you for those Every wonderful comments. wants to be a comedian secretly. That's true. So... Um, could you talk a little bit more about the weavers? Now, you have set up a project at the Aspen Institute. It's not only people you've observed, but you're interacting, you're working with these folks. Yeah. Well, you can sign up for our work if you go to weareweavers.org. And the idea is that they are the people, as I said, who are going to lead us uh, out of this valley. And what we have to do, first we have to illuminate them and make them famous. And so we make a lot of videos about these people so you can see, oh, this is what they do. There's a woman, we're just doing a video on a woman in Chicago named Aisha Butler. She lives in a tough neighborhood in Chicago called Englewood, and she was going to move out because it was violent. She was afraid for her nine-year-old daughter. As she was moving out, she looked across the street into an empty lot, and um, she saw two little girls playing with broken bottles. And she turned to her husband and said, we're not leaving. We're not just going to be a family that left that behind. That's what everybody else does. So she, didn't, she didn't, had never volunteered. She, searched, she Googled volunteer in Englewood. Uh, and she started volunteering, and now she runs a community organization there. And none of these people planned this. Another woman, Lisa Fitzpatrick in New Orleans, she was a healthcare executive, was driving, turned her head and saw a 10- and 11-year-old boy looking terrified. They lifted up a gun, and they shot her in the face. Oh. It was a gang initiation ritual. And she survived and remembered the look of terror in their eyes and said, well, I was a victim here, but so were they. And so she quit her job, and she just um, works with gang members. And these are heroic epic cases, more heroic than probably most of us are going to do. But they set up a standard, and they show us we can do little things. We can invite our neighbors over for dinner. That wouldn't be so hard. And that's how weaving is going to happen. So you're suggesting that becoming a weaver, uh, reaching out for good, is also an antidote to being in the valley that helps you move to the second mountain, the second part of life. I mean, I, I do think the joy I've gotten from my Thursday night dinners can't be expressed. And we don't, somehow we aim too low. We, uh, we aim for just mere happiness when you can experience joy. And happiness is when you achieve a goal, you ex get some success. That's great. I'm for happiness. But joy is when you lose yourself, when you transcend yourself. And we should be shooting for joy and not for happiness. Uh, and they, they show us not only a better way to live, but a better way for the national life to be rewoven from the bottom up. You're wearing a pin in your lapel that has something to do with this. Yeah, and th th we, I've learned we've got to do branding. So the, <laughs> the, the pin is, is, what, is our brand. And we're bringing together next, in two weeks, I'm really looking forward to it in Washington, D.C., 350 of these people from around the country. And we're going to try to see how, do, how can we work together. We, can, we can't have a national effect in, unless we do mutually reinforcing work. Uh, and so we're just going to try to figure that one out. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Going back to the Valley for a second, um, the uh, you talked about idolizing uh 
time over people, the valley of detachment, and so on. I noticed that technology popped up in that. Uh, you were, you know, sitting at your computer and so on. What role do you think that uh, the computers and technology have? You cited the higher suicide rates and all of the societal impacts. What role does our connection to technology, even social media, have? Yeah, I, would, I think overall technology has been a great boon to us and made my life as a writer, researcher, so much more information. So I'm not anti-tech. But it's a new technology, and we, in the beginning, we haven't learned to manage the downside. And the rise in teenage suicide um, since 2011 is in, very much attached to the smartphone. It's much higher in girls, by the way. Uh, and so one of the things, and that's in part because social technology and social media, you're not really speaking out of your heart and soul. You're speaking out of your ego. Either it's an Instagram post, look how great my life is, or it's a Twitter post, look how stupid you are. And a psychologist told me that a lot of young people, they have many different selves they project out on social media, none of which are their actual self. And that can have a debilitating effect internally. But the good news is, and I think this is true in this community where we're sitting, people are beginning to understand the problems, and we're trying to understand how to fix them. And so wherever I go, I find people who are finding ways to control the technology so it doesn't take over their lives. And so I have a friend named Andy Crouch. He's got a bunch of rituals. He says, before I turn on any screen, I step out my front door and I just look at the sky. Every morning I just look at the sky. And then he has Sabbaths, one hour a day, one day a week, uh, one week or one month a year, no screens. And when his kids were little, he would some, home, some rooms in the home had no tech, no screens. Some had screens, but they had to be in the outside of the room. And in the inside of the room, in the center, he would put crayons and Lego, creative things, just to steer the kids in that direction. So I have confidence that we'll figure out how to manage the downside and profit from the upside. You, you talk about a number of uh, individuals, prominent individuals in our society and their journeys, the first mountain, the valley, the second mountain. What can we learn from Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> He's the Messiah in my book. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you the thing I admire uh, most about him. Uh, I, he, his, his third album, his first two albums did not succeed commercially. His third album was called Barn to Run, landed him on the cover of Time and Newsweek. It was a massive explosion. And his, uh, he, the natural progression of his career was to go turn himself into an international global superstar and sort of leave his roots. But instead, his, his fourth album was called Darkness on the Edge of Town, and he planted himself back in the little rural town in New Jersey that really was the center of his emotional life. He wasn't afraid to be particular and to be grounded in his roots. He really planted himself down, and even today he lives within 10 miles of that spot. And that act meant he wasn't just rootless. It meant he was grounded in the thing that really drove his art. And that was a brave decision, and I think the key to his long-term success. I saw him once in concert in, um, in Madrid, and everybody was wearing T-shirts that said, The Stone Pony, uh, Greasy Lake, the little particulars of his landscape in his songs. And these Spanish kids sort of had entered his... Freehold, New Jersey. And at one point in the concert, he's singing Born in the USA, and 65,000 Spanish kids are around me singing, I was born in the USA, I was born in the USA. I was like, no, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but art has this power to be universal if you're planted in what the root of your life is. 
And most of us have this thing in our life that nags at us, that is our core itch. And for him, it's figuring out his parents' lives and his relationship with his dad. For me, it's, I think, the the temptation, because I can communicate, it's a temptation to go by glibness. And so my life is really about trying intentionally to go deeper. And my books are really one long effort to do that. Kafka has a line, a book should be an axe for the frozen sea inside you. Uh, and this book has been that for me. And that was not glib. That's a good, that is an insight. Um, back to Bruce Springsteen for a second. I you love call, this. It's great. <laughs> you call neighborhood the unit of change. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, so we sometimes think we're going to turn around society by picking an individual and getting them a scholarship. And that's good. That's good. But I think we've learned, a friend of mine says, you can't only swim in the part of the pool you're swimming in. You can't only clean the part of the pool you're swimming in. You have to clean the whole pool. And we're powerfully shaped by, um, by the neighborhood norms, not just the family norms, the neighborhood norms. And so, for example, there was a, uh, there was a great economist who was at Stanford, now I think he's back at Harvard, named Raj Chetty. And he compared, for example, two neighborhoods in L.A. that are demographically and ethnically very similar, South Central L.A. and Compton. At one neighborhood, the, the number of the percentage of men who got incarcerated was something like eight or ten times higher than the next neighborhood, only two miles away. Why was that? Because one neighborhood had social institutions that could ch- channel people's lives. The other lacked those institutions, or it had negative ones. And so my view is we turn our country around neighborhood by neighborhood by throwing things into the neighborhood and then um, hoping we can create a positive community atmosphere. But when you think in those terms, the neighborhood is a unit of change, you really have to think radically because you have to ask, is there power in the neighborhood? Are people in the neighborhood given the chance to take control of their own lives? Uh, What assets do they have they're not using? What possibilities do they have? And I think one of the things each neighborhood should do is come together and say, what's our core problem, and what are our possibilities to solve that problem? And just as a village compact, and that's one of the ways, one of the technologies we can use to stitch neighborhoods back together. You went through a, a more profound transition during your journey from mountain to mountain, and it's one that has been noted in uh, the New Yorker and New York Magazine and other, it's where your book and your... your uh, uh, current uh, themes have been commented upon, and that is really a religious journey. So you were raised in the Jewish faith, although you also had a Christian theme. Can you talk a little bit about your journey, and to what extent has there been a progression away from pure Judaism and to incorporate some of Christianity? Yeah, it doesn't feel like that. I was raised in this weird, I use the unfortunate phrase, religiously bisexual when I was a kid, um, because I was raised in the Jewish home, Jewish faith, Jewish peoplehood, uh, and, but I went to a Christian school and a Christian camp. And so I had both these things in my mind. Uh, and I was in the choir, and I think in the choir at church, I mean, at school, we were, um, we were like 25% Jewish, so we would sing the hymns, but to square it with our religion, uh, we just wouldn't sing the word Jesus, so the volume would drop down and come back up. Um, <laughs> And so I had these two very much related moral systems in my head. And it wasn't a problem because I didn't believe in God. So it it didn't really bother me. And then over the course of um, my life, very, very gradually, I wish God had just come in and, like, split some tablets or whatever, done something (laughs) dramatic, nothing like that. But I would say my 
the categories, the secular categories, were not adequate to reality as I experienced it. I had moments where I felt there was something transcendent going on here. There's magic here. We're living in an enchanted world, a created world. There are certain moral laws that feel like they're just not, just not genetic. They're, they feel universal to me. And then the job I do uh, in journalism, I couldn't care about the stories I care about and the people I write about if I didn't believe they had souls. If, if I thought their lives were meaningless and was just going to peter out, I couldn't really care. And so I think the people I write about really do have some magic dust in them, some souls. And I think we all have souls, and I think those souls are somehow all connected. And believe me, I have no clarity on where that leads. But I know when I see moral beauty. And in the book of Exodus, I see moral beauty. And frankly, I also see beauty in the Beatitudes, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, that the meek shall inherit the earth, the poor in spirit will be rewarded, the merciful will receive mercy. That is just morally beautiful to me. And so I can only, I, I'm not one, like one of these people. Some people I meet, religious people, and like, yeah, I talk to God every day. He told me to order a cheeseburger lunch. He told me not to order the salmon. I'm not like that at all. I have glimpses, vague things, and I just an awareness of how weird God is. How we, like, it doesn't seem like a white figure up in the sky. It seems like the ground of being, the underlying force, emotional and moral force in our lives. But beyond that, I, I'm uh, just exploring. We have a few questions from the audience about your religious progression or your observations on religion in the U.S. What effect do you think the downturn in church attendance has on cultural morality and tolerance? Yeah. Well, the, thing, the interesting fact about that is that Americans pray just as much as they ever did. If you, if you ask people, do you pray? Americans still pray a lot. But if you ask them, do you pray around other people, that goes down. And so they're just not attending synagogue. They're not attending church. And so that the and what you lose there is two things. One, the the way churches and synagogues really help people lead happier lives is partly through prayer, but it's mostly through community. And if you're not attending a small group or a regular minion, you're not getting the joy of kibitzing. And so, and that's a loss. Or fellowship time. Fellowship time to get, get it out of the Yiddish. Um, but the second thing, in my view, everyone is annoyed by organized religion. And I get that. But if you're not in an organized religion, it's too easy to be easy on yourself. Just to have some vague spirituality that never really asks anything of you. And so I sort of like the specificity, specificity of religion. And then I will say this about the Bible, is that the stories are miracles. The fact that some 3,000 or whatever, whatever your faith is, 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 years ago, this thing, this book of Exodus, this story happened. It's a miracle. It's a profound story of how people come to personhood and how individuals become a people. It's a very profound moral truth in those stories. And so when I think, oh, all these miracles, did, did God really part the Red Sea? I don't know. But I know somehow these very deep stories were created, and they have so much to teach us about the eternal realities of life. Another question from our audience here. If the soul yearns for good, how do you explain evil or evil actions? Well, we're not only good. We're, we're deeply broken. One thing I've noticed about that is I've, in the course of my career, um, I have interviewed a lot of a lot of bad people, criminals, genocide, warriors, who've done horrible things. 
they all have some rationalization for why what they did was, they, they can explain it to themselves as really good. No, I've never met anybody who said, yeah, I'm really bad. Even Hitler had some rationalization that he was serving some good. So we're greatly capable of lying to ourselves. And we're also greatly capable of doing moral distancing uh, and to feed the ego or to feed some tribal emotion. I once read a book about the Rwandan genocide, and it was by a French journalist who asked somebody who had murdered their neighbor, their neighbor of 25 years, what did you think when you were macheting that person? And the person said, at that moment, I didn't really see their face. They were just like a vague shape. And people have the ability to numb and to morally distance and to not see the particular of each people. And when I look at our politics, frankly, we're doing very poorly at that. We, we label, we, we tribe, and then we don't see the particulars of the actual human beings. A lot of what happened at the border and has happened at the border is frankly a result of not seeing that these are individuals with families. It's just this abstract thing called immigrants. Uh, and we tend to do, we tend to dehumanize and depersonalize through stereotype. And that's a mental habit, frankly, we're all guilty of to some degree. Uh, a week ago, one of the largest Protestant denominations in the U.S., the Methodist Church, upheld a policy that excludes LGBT uh, Q uh, members of the clergy and also prohibits LGBTQ marriages. Um, there's a lot of debate and a lot of concern about uh, sort of the church and society and how to handle this uh, decision. What 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 do you think about that? Well, just on that, I've always um, been very strongly pro-gay marriage. Uh, I've written about that uh, for years and years, and now it's a non-controversial statement in most places. I, I think it's a mistake for any religious community to bet their entire faith and their identity as Christians or Jews on being right on one side or another of the sexual revolution. That faith is so much deeper and more complex, and the core of every faith I'm familiar with, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, is we're defined by our service to the stranger and our service to the poor. And that should be at the center of every faith. And Religions are at their most persuasive when they put that at the center, when they live it out, and they don't have to talk about it. They just have to live that. And I have seen so many cases of that, of somebody living that out. Uh, and then, uh, and you know, I think some of the, the culture warrior nature of, um, of religious identity is just the politicization of religion and turning religion into a politics uh, religion is much deeper. I, I've become annoyed recently. I cover politics. I think politics is important, but it's not the core of my identity. It's not the core of life. The core of life is what's the nature of our character and how well do we treat people and how well do we know people. And politics is a very thin layer. And if you base your entire life identity on a political label, you're asking more of politics than it can give you. We, should, we need to detone politics down, in my view, understand that it's there's a Samuel Johnson quote, of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are those that kings are, can cause or cure? And so politics is a competition between partial truths, and it's about finding balance. And we go a little too far off in the individualist direction, we have to find balance. We go a little too far off in the free market direction, we have to find balance. But it's not like, I, I don't see it as a war between the damned and the saved. You're often described as an American conservative political commentator. Do you agree with this description today? I, I actually was on 
uh, Michael Krasny's show this morning, and I, I, I left thinking, you know, maybe I should drop, drop that word. Because <laughs> one of my heroes is Edmund Burke, who's a philosopher of the 18th century, and he had a certain version of conservatism, which looks nothing like the version we call conservative today. And out of loyalty, maybe to William F. Buckley or to Edmund Burke, I keep that word. And once you attach that word to me, suddenly I'm Ann Coulter. <laughs> and so I was thinking maybe it should just I mean in political terms I'm I'm moderate uh, probably I'm, I, maybe I'd be what a liberal republican was years ago great future if you went, went back in American history my closest, the people I really agree with were 19th century Whigs um, and so they believed in using government in limited but energetic energetic ways to make it possible for Boer boys to rise and succeed. They were big into building bridges and building canals and railways to create a dynamic economy that would create social mobility. And now there are six of us left. Um, and, 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 and so I'm, I'm politically homeless, and uh, maybe I should just admit that um, and rather than stick to the word conservative. But Burke was a conservative uh, in that he thought change should be constant Gradual, because life is more complicated than we can understand. And I, I don't, hate to think it's been taken away by reactionaries. A related and rather broad question. How do we restore reason in America from your view as a, I, this person says, former conservative? Good. <laughs> this is all about finding the identity of David Brooks, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Hannah Arendt once said that all fanaticism is produced by existential anxiety. That if you don't know who you are, what you believe in, where you're planted, then fanaticism gives you a very simple black-white view of the world that allow, gives you some emotional security. And that was true in the mid-20th century, and I think it's true today. And so I emphasize the weavers because we're not going to solve the problem in our politics unless we solve the problem in the foundation of our society the network of trust that the market and the state depend on. And when that network of trust is broken as it is now, we're going to get bad politics and bad capitalism. Uh, and so to me, that's why I work on the weavers, because I think the problem is in the foundation of our society, not up top. And when you get the emotional security, then people can unclench and become re a little more reasonable. We're all going to, always not going to be perfect, but a little more. Um, talking about Community. Uh, this person wants to go back and look at the 50s. Uh, he, they, he say, you write that people were enmeshed in tight communities with prescribed social norms that sometimes seemed stifling. Isn't this a bit of an understatement for almost everyone who wasn't a white, straight male? Yeah. So I say that in the book, that the problem with the 50s culture, it had a lot of tight communities, but it, was, um, it tolerated racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said it was a guest house culture. You could be in America, but the white male Protestants owned the house, and you were just a guest in the house. And so you had to play by their rules and ex accept a subservient status. And so we got rid of that, and we had to, and it was the right thing to do. But unfortunately, as Sachs says, we then turned into a hotel. We went from a guest house to a hotel. We all had our individual rooms, but we didn't really have any ownership of the hotel. Somebody else did. And so what he says, we should, be a, we should move to a country where we build a house together. And he points out that in Genesis, the creation of the universe is covered in nine verses. 
In Exodus, the creation of the tabernacle is covered in hundreds and hundreds of verses, building this little thing, this tabernacle. And so he said, why did it take so long? Why were there so many verses devoted to it? And for people who go through bar mitzvahs, a lot of them have extremely boring Torah portions that are all about nine cubits of this kind of wood, three cubits of that. Um, And he says, because a community is a group of people who build something together. And so the disparate tribes of Israel were brought together into a people because they commonly built the tabernacle. And we need to do that in our culture. We need to build a home we can all live in together. Let's talk about the media for a minute. You are one of them, uh, at least in part of your uh, activities. Uh, so what do you think is right and wrong about the American media today? What, what, what are the directions? We've had a crumbling of the old order in terms of the big newspapers, news magazines, etc. What do you miss? What's good? What's developing that you like? Well, I think the partisanization, the tribalization of the media is a core problem um, that you, people get captured by Fox or MSNBC, and that becomes church. And just the needless, the thing that I struggle with the most uh, is uh, we're all ranked now. There's like page views. And we're all told, how many page views did you get? How, what's your rating? And so now when I write a column, I think about that. Was this going to get a lot of page views or not? And that shouldn't be. And my editors say, don't think that way. But the rankings are right there. And so the temptation is there to play to the rankings. Uh, and so that's, that is a great temptation for me to say, no, this, some columns have an audience of one. You, there's an important person you're trying to influence, and you write it to that person. But now we're all in the business of perform, a little more performance. So I think that's the temptation that I think a lot of us feel. Um, the good part is I happen to think this has been a very good age of journalism. Um, my newspaper, which I'm very proud to be associated with, has bro- that and the Washington Post and other papers have broken stories, a ton of stories that have since been confirmed by things like the Mueller report. And we've had much greater transparency into this White House than any other, in part because they all hate each other and they leak like sieves, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, in part because of good hard work the reporters are doing. And so I think newspapers at, at the times were, I think, doing great journalism, actually, and we're doing financially okay. They, um, Donald Trump calls us the failing New York Times, but we've, we are, our circulation is th- thriving. One of our journalists tweeted out, look, we even fail at failing. Uh, we're doing, uh, um, and then the final thing to be said is that's sort of daily journalism. Long form, there's a lot of great outlets now that didn't exist before. I highly recommend going to a website called The Browser, uh, which captures five of the best long essays written in the English language any given day. And they're all great. And so there's a lot of good stuff to read. That, that, uh, so we should be appreciative of what we got. We have a new online news outlet in this area, the San Jose Spotlight. So check it out uh, as some of our print media has stumbled a bit and declined. How do the president's Twitter attacks at the New York Times make you and other journalists there feel? Yeah, People saw them as more threats to the press than I think we did. Um, I just feel it's just like I decided months ago or years ago I'm not going to react to every Twitter thing that he puts out because there's nothing back there. There's just six fireflies in a jar. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, yeah, I don't. 
there, and there, so I, I think there has been a. I worry about people losing trust in the media, uh, and I will say this is a long-term trend with, with um, online uh, that there's so much pure fiction out there that it does. People have lost the ability to distinction distinguish between, frankly, the New York Times and some of the pure fiction that's out there. If we make a mistake, a factual error, which we all do, believe me, people come down on us like a ton of bricks, and we have to correct. So in the long run, we tend to get things reasonably, at least the facts right. But there's so, there's so much out there that's just people pick their own facts, and gossip has been now enshrined in things that look legitimate. And so I do worry about the undermining of our basic sense of what's factual. Tell us about the maximal marriage. Uh, so the, there's a movement, according to sociologists, that people are now marrying so they can both be individuals in alliances. So I'll leave my life, you lead your life, but we'll help each other out, we'll be married. And this is an, a sociologist named Eli Finkel calls this the expressive marriage, the self-expressive marriage. He says this is the norm today. And my view is you should go for the maximal marriage, the marriage where it's a complete ego surrender to the other person. Uh, there's a, a book of um, called The Meaning of Marriage, where they say, you get married, and about two years later, you realize the person you thought was perfect is actually kind of selfish. And as you're making this realization about her, she's making it about you. <laughs> and so you can create a truce marriage in which you don't talk about all the selfishness in there, or you can decide, I'm going to decide that my selfishness is the core problem here. Because we all have a tendency to think the other person's selfishness is the core problem. And they say if, if both sides think their own selfishness is the core problem here, then you have the making of a good marriage. And so there's a lot of, I repeat, a lot of advice I found useful in how to build a good marriage, how to build a good vocation, how to build a good community. And in marriage, in choosing a marriage partner, there's a lot of advice I repeat, one of which is a marriage is ideally a 50-year conversation. Pick someone you can talk to forever. And then there are certain more practical tips. You know, they say uh, you should never go to, get, go to bed mad. Well, sometimes you just go to bed. Like, <laughs> sleep on it, make waffles in the morning, you'll feel better. Um, you'll have a better... That's a way to do relationship. Um, if you if you're, uh, want to have a build, strong relationship, boast about your partner and have them overhear you boasting. Uh, or another bit of advice I pass along is if you're going to bitch about your partner, do it to his mom, not to your mom. Because his mom will forgive him, your mom never will. Uh, and so that I, these are all practical morsels that I wanted to cram into the book. All your morsels are delicious, to my view. Can you speak to how people living paycheck to paycheck can be expected to climb the second mountain? It's a, a good question, which I've thought about a lot. And I guess my conclusion is we all have souls. And I've been in rich part of the world and very poor parts of the world. I've never been in a part of the world where people did not want to be morally good. And the churches, synagogues, and mosques of the world are filled with people who are struggling economically, but who still take their faith seriously, take their lives seriously, take their moral choices very seriously. And I think we could all say in our experience that sometimes the people who are closest to poverty may be closer to virtue than some of the really rich people. And so uh, I don't think it's like some people, you know, you could have this idea in your head, you're on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you've got to get a basic paycheck, and then you start thinking like a moral person. I don't think it's like that. I think people up and down 
uh, the scale, whatever their economic, they still want to have good relations. They want to treat each other fairly, and they want to be treated fairly. And so I think that's a human universal. Back to um, the uh, the unit of change being the neighborhood and so on. Just a, a comment and a question about the Commonwealth Club. We get together twice a day on average somewhere in the Bay Area. Many programs are smaller than this, more intimate groups. You talk about the technology of gathering. In terms of technological leaders and the technology of gathering, this is pretty much it. What can we do more to help build community and... Yeah. Well, of course, you, you already do so much. There's such a rich community right here. And we are people who live here, uh, where I live, we're lucky to have institutions that really populate our world and gives us a chance to come to this. And institutions are things that have built, as I say, a technology of gathering. My Thursday night dinner, the technology is the dinner table. There's a group in Chicago called Becoming a Man where they have what they call check-ins, where they take gang kids, 12 of them, and they all check in every week, how are you doing spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically, and they have to be completely vulnerable. So you invent this thing to come together, and you have public conversations on public issues, and it's a way to bring people together, and it's significant that in the age of the Internet, people still want to be in the room together. Uh, And it's a, a great blessing for this community. I mean, you're there's no one like you in the country, really. Uh, and the only thing I could think of to add, because you've got all the technologies that religions use are ones secular institutions should copy. Small group discussions, large gatherings, rituals. But the only thing that I could think of, and it would be an interesting experiment, there are so many communities in this country that have nothing like this. And where there's... I, w- I was in a place in North Carolina... They have no place to gather, literally no place to gather. They had a bowling alley, but it burned down. And so there was somebody who came back to town to create a coffee shop just so there could be a place where people could gather. And, and somebody else came back to town and was starting a Merle Haggard festival. Uh, and I wonder if the Commonwealth Club could be in rural America. And it would be interesting to know how that would work. It's, that, that's, that's the spare, socially spare places in the country. Thank you. Good thought. Um, We are at the point of our last question, and it comes from the audience. With all you've done in your life, what's left on your bucket list? Well, I I used to say um, I really wanted to write a really good book once that I could be proud of. But then I realized if you set out to write a really good book, you're guaranteed to not write a really good book. (laughs) Because you should just care about the subject, and maybe good will come. Um, My life has been a a trajectory, as I say, of deepening. And I would like to... um, create a, a um, just a galaxy of warm places where I could go. And so with Weave, I'm trying to help people who are weaving build a movement out of that. I think my wife and I are going to start something called the Ruth Collective, where we could take kids in their 20s from disadvantaged backgrounds and just have a weekly discussion about how hard it is to go through your 20s. So I think it's really hard to go through your 20s right now. Um, and so that would be creating another community. Uh, and then if I could just write that book where I could relax. The problem is I've, I've interviewed people who achieved great things in their life, even Milton Friedman. And at the end of his life, I said, do you feel you could relax? You've done so much more than you ever could have imagined. And he didn't even understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever says, ah, I'm done here. Uh, we all want to do differently. And the good news for me is I've changed so much over the last five or six years 
who knows what the next five or six will bring. I could be coming back to you as the Dalai Lama. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to David Brooks for his thoughts and his wit and his humor. You keep us all thinking, and uh, we really enjoyed this. Thank you so much to our audience here in Palo Alto uh, at the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Uh, we, again, like to thank David Brooks, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, author of The Second Mountain, and thank you also to our radio, TV, Internet audiences. And speaking of rituals... Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, celebrating over 116 years of enlightened discussion and 22 years in Silicon Valley, is adjourned. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you.